0: through 11. I said to myself come now I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good but that also proved to be meaningless laughter I said is madness and what does pleasure accomplish I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly my mind still guiding me with wisdom I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. And then Ecclesiastes 9, 7 through 10. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God is giving you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life, and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Grace, thanks for reading that little gem for us. Tonight we're going to look at chapter 2. And we're going to walk alongside our trusty little guide, named as the teacher or the preacher in this book. And we're going to walk down the paths that he has already walked down. And we're going to see three things. The first is where does the play hard path to pleasure actually lead? Where does the play hard path to pleasure actually lead? The second thing we'll talk about is where does the work hard path to pleasure, the productivity path to pleasure, where does that actually lead? And then what's the true path to pleasure? Let me pray for us and we'll get after it. Uh, Jesus, when we were worshiping you and singing about you before, I was just remembering even what we talked about last week. You say that the scriptures, all of them, you say that Ecclesiastes testifies about you. And you're the one our hearts long to see. and Our ears are hungry to hear your voice. And our souls are eager and needy for your healing touch. So would you do a wonderful thing for us tonight and be kind enough to show us yourself in the in this very chapter, where again your name does not appear, but you are present. Pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I want to jump right in. And I want to do that by reminding you who is talking to you in Ecclesiastes? Who is this teacher? Who is this preacher who is sharing these heavy things with us? The guy is not a monk. He doesn't live in a monastery. This is a king who had the cash and the time and the resources to what he says. Uh, it's in verse 10. He says, I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired, and I refused my heart no pleasure. You gotta have cash and time and a bunch of little servants to be able to do that kind of thing. But this is a guy that that chased every interest, every desire of his heart he explored, every rock he turned over. And so this dude has credibility. He's a subject matter expert in some of the things that you and I actually think about um, and do every week of our lives. So I just want to clarify, this guy's not a street preacher standing at Tate deck saying, sexual immorality is bad, drinking is bad. This is a preacher who says, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, what do you want to know? This is a veteran sharing war stories, not some naive little kid who's never been off the battle. But this is a veteran who's talkative and actually wants to impart knowledge and share it with us. And so I just want you to listen and to really consider what this person is saying. He knows what he's talking about. He's also inspired by the Spirit of God. Doesn't that help? (laughs) And so he speaks with authority. But he's a man who's been there and done that. Now, I got to warn you, because he's a man who's been there and done that with the kinds of things he's talking about in this chapter, we need to be forewarned. He's the kind of guy who says things out loud that nobody else will say out loud. He's the kind of guy, if he was in your community group, you probably wouldn't get up and give the speech that Kathleen gave because your community group would have been like cringely awkward and tense because he would have said things nobody else would say. He says in an outside voice what everybody else is thinking and feeling with an inside voice but never says. Now, this is a leap. This was six or seven years ago. I'm not expecting you to uh, remember the name. But uh, in 2015, uh, this, she was a model. She was an Instagram star kind of influencer in Australia, Asina O'Neill. She kind of blipped on the international news f- for a little while because she had this kind of viral post that she put up about the dangers of social media. This was, a, uh, this was a girl. She was about 16 at the time, but she had a million followers, hundreds of thousands of views on her YouTube videos, Um, She was getting paid by sponsors $2,000 every time she posted on Instagram by her sponsors. But in 2015, she went through all 2,000 of her posts and deleted all of them except for the top 100 most liked posts that she had ever put up. And of those remaining 100, she went back through and changed the captions on all of them Before they were some ad caption or whatever, like, whatever, I don't know. I'm not going to make you cringe by me attempting to guess what those original captions were. But I'll tell you what the new caption was. One of those new captions that she wrote over an old post was just a picture of her, kind of one of her modeling pictures. And she said, here's what I was really thinking. Please like this photo. I put on makeup, curled my hair, tight dress, big uncomfortable jewelry, Took over 50 shots until I got one I thought y'all might like. Then I edited this one, this one selfie for ages on several apps just so I could feel some social approval from you. There is nothing real about this. Hashtag celebrity construct. That's what I mean. That's something that everybody feels but nobody says. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes says things that are really unsettling but it's very familiar to all of us. Nobody's thinking like, where's he coming from? You know exactly where he's coming from because you think it. So let's get down to that first point. Where does the play hard path to pleasure actually lead? Just to kind of pick up a few of these verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, right at the top of your page. He said to himself, "'Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what's good.'" but that also proved to be meaningless or vaporous. This word meaningless, remember, we've got beef with it. We don't really like that translation. It basically means kind of air or vapor or wind or smoke or frustration, like you try to grab onto it, and lo and behold, you're just left with nothing. She says, it all proved vaporous, meaningless. Laughter, I said, it's madness. And what does pleasure even accomplish? So I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, But I still had my wits about me. I still had my mind guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of our lives. So just to clear up misconceptions, this teacher's not talking about, I'm going to grab a few white claws and try to feel what it feels like to be tipsy. This is kind of a full send in the party scene. This is a guy who's like, I want to know if the rumors are true that you really can find God or find life at the bottom of a vodka bottle or kind of permanently in the party scene. I've heard people talk about that. I'm gonna go do it. And he says, like how do we know that? Because you don't really necessarily get that just from verse one. In verse three is where we get it. He said, I tried embracing folly. The word there means literally like grabbed hold of firmly or I laid hold of. It's like the, um, the rodeo guy who kind of like grabs on to those reins and holds on for dear life. I laid hold of folly and I was along for the ride of foolishness. I got strapped on to that bull and went wherever it took me. Um, I should say this, he's not just doing it for fun. He has a mission, he has a point behind it and he tells us this. I've already alluded to it, but he says, is there any truth to these rumors? He's almost kind of going undercover. He's got his notepad with him. He's going to take notes. He's going to pay attention. That's what he means when he says, you know, uh, my mind was still guiding me in wisdom. I still had my wits about me in this. I have a point. I'm investigating. I'm exploring. I'm asking hard questions of all these paths that I'm going to walk down. And he wants to know the answer. Is life really a matter of how often we hook up? Or how many of the temptations in our hearts that we embrace and follow or how many likes we get. He's going to test all those different rumors. He's going to bring it in the lab and he's going to go live it. Now, he steps into these paths and he starts walking down these paths with some skepticism. He seems a little suspicious, which I appreciate about him. He's a consistent skeptic, not like some of the skeptics who are very choosy and highly selective in what they choose to be uh, skeptical about. He's skeptical skeptical about it all. Even these paths he's going down, he's like, I'm not sure there's much to this, but I'm going to go find out. So he walks down these paths, this path of pleasure, this path of productivity, this path of play hard and work hard. And then at some point, I don't know how long we're talking, months, years, seasons of his entire life, I don't know, but... He sobers up, and he reports back his findings, and he says that those paths proved to be meaningless, which is an interesting phrase to use. It proved to be, which meant it didn't appear to be meaningless on the face of it. It had to be proven. It had to be tested. It had to be explored. In other words, he's saying it makes sense why you and I find these paths promising, And why we might kind of just run down them headlong and be like, yeah, this looks like pretty good odds. I'm going to be happy doing this. But he says, as I walked down these paths, it proved to be meaningless, hevel, as we said last week. Frustrated and frustrating. One of uh, the most memorable, I guess I could say one of the most memorable places, one of my most favorite places from my undergrad days, In Athens was the front porch of the Beta House at Millage and Broad, um, back where the varsity used to be. And uh, we ended a lot of nights on that porch, kind of rehashing the festivities of the night. And every now and then, guys on the porch were just in an honest mood. And sometimes the theme word that would come up repeatedly as we kind of reminisced about the night's events... Was empty. And it was kind of this sense of, uh, well, guess I'll go to sleep, forget it all, we'll do it again next week. And we certainly didn't know it at the time, and I certainly didn't know it at the time, but in essence, we were agreeing with the preacher and saying, you know, this is proving to be vaporous. It's almost like, and I don't recommend having to make every mistake to learn the lesson. That's like the do not be like the horse. that has got to be moved around by pain and pressure with a bit and a bridle. Learn this way. It's more painless. But we were learning the hard way. This is proving to be empty. And it was a lesson we didn't learn fast. We rinsed and repeated. But for the teacher, he's saying, hear me. This will prove, it will prove to leave you high and dry. Then he shifts gears a little bit. And in verse 8, I mean, this is a big shifting of gears. He goes from that on the early verses of the chapter. And then he turns to something a lot more consequential and thrilling than beer. And it's sex. And it's a throwaway comment. There's a little ambiguity about what the word harem means, but it probably means what we think that word means. Throws himself headlong down the path of promiscuity and kind of hooking up with whoever I want, whenever I want, however I want. Whatever desires in my heart, it's going to get fulfilled. What about this path to pleasure? Are the rumors true? The teacher wants to know, and he wants to share his findings with us, and he wants to report back. Can this path make you feel like you matter? Can this path or this lifestyle make you feel like you're enough, finally? Other people think you're enough. Girls think you're enough. Guys think you're enough. You think you're enough. He says in verse 11, um, essentially no, even that was meaningless. It was heavil. It was chasing wind. And I caught it. There was nothing. But we might be more persuaded by maybe another perspective on this. There's a book that I'm reading through uh, in tandem with this sermon series. So this this quote and this reference came from a guy named Zach Eswine who's, who's quoting this girl. Just wanted to kind of give credit where it's due. But Carrie Cohen uh, wrote a book. She's an author, wrote a book a few years ago. It's called Loose Girl, A Memoir of Promiscuity. And it's, it's her autobiography, and it's basically an evolving journal of what her interior life was like as she kind of pursued headlong this path of kind of hookups with whoever I want, whenever I want, however I want. And one of the big things she came, away, came out of that with was this sense of um, I began to lose track of who these guys even were, didn't remember their names. And then one day it dawned on me, I'd lost track of who I was. And I didn't know who I was anymore. And she wrote this. For a man, counting up his conquests might be a pleasant trip down memory lane. I don't think it is, but says for a girl it's a whole other story i had let these men inside me wanting that to make me matter to them wanting that to make me matter and she talked about the long-term damage that came from a path that appeared meaningful it appeared to say you'll be enough you are enough look at this attention Look at the response. Look at the desire that you've wanted. He said, it left me hevel. Frustrated and living in a frustrating life. Not getting what I wanted. Chasing the wind and successfully catching wind. Romans 1 talks about the pathology of what sin does to our desires and our hearts. It basically makes us want to turn in stuff God made, which is material or immaterial things. I mean, it could be like, you know, material things like endorphins when you go exercise or material things like food or like sleep or like beer or immaterial things like friendship or camaraderie or intimacy or love. It makes us turn created things into the creator. That's Paul's language. Or in other words, like we said last week, it makes us, want to, it makes us prone to turn God's gifts into God's replacement. And we expect divine things out of created things and we expect divine deliverance out of created things. Harry Cohen was expecting divine things out of that path to pleasure through sex. The teacher was expecting and wanting, and we're expecting and wanting oftentimes, divine things at the bottom of a bottle. How do you know? How do you know whether you're enjoying the gift of alcohol as a gift or asking it to be God? Well, I don't know. I'm not going to define where that line is, but drunkenness is asking beer, to be God. It's asking it to be transcendent for you, to elevate you out of the plane of existence, out of this hevel world that you live in, to redeem you out of it and deliver you into some new plane where you have a personality that's enough. And people think you're enough. Or maybe your self-hatred fades to the background and you think you're enough. How do we know we're asking a gift like sex with a spouse, sexuality with a spouse, How do we know we're elevating that into divine status and asking God-like things of it that'll just crush us? Same thing with the other examples he uses. When we take it out of its context that God gave, its safe context, its life-giving context. We'll end here. I'll I'll say a little bit more about that later. But that's the first part. That's the teacher when he's talking to us about the play hard strategy. But he doesn't end there. Um, He shifts pretty quickly into a work hard strategy. And this is an important place to talk about these two things together because UGA is renowned for being the work hard, play hard school. Back in my day, we made all the lists of top party schools in the nation. We were still like, had to be really smart to get in, had to be really smart to stay in, but even more so now. So some of you might just be play hard people, but those days might have faded. Most of you are probably work hard, play hard. Some of you are just work hard. You don't have time to play You're pre med or something. There's no time for that. (laughs) But productivity is the next thing he wants to talk about the promising path of productivity and the divine things that it promises us. And he says, We're chasing the God of getting stuff done. Clean up the phrase. And y'all know the allure of productivity the same way I do. I define my good days as days when I got stuff done. In my worst days, I say the phrase, and I can say it all the time, I feel like I didn't get anything done today. That's my definition of a terrible day. feel like I didn't get anything done today. It's embarrassing if someone asks you, what would you do today? And you're like, uh, nothing. You're like, oh, well, that's kind of depressing. The teacher is not asking, are you productive? He's asking, are you looking to meaning in productivity? Are you asking productivity to make you enough? Let's turn back to the passage. Let me read a few more of these verses of where he talks about this. Verse 4 through 9 in the first part of 10. He says, this is the teacher, this is the king. He says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens, parks, planted all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to water the groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had other slaves who were born in my house. We'll talk about that in a second. I I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I gathered up silver and gold. My bank account was flush and the treasure of kings and provinces. I had all the delights of a man's heart and I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem all before me. The slave thing. Why does the Bible just make mention of that and move right along? because the point that the teacher is making in Ecclesiastes is different than taking issue with every societal ill in his day at that moment. There's other places in Scripture that speak clearly about this. His point is different. That was a sign of wealth. It was a sign of power and status in that day. All right. So that's why he doesn't pause to take issue with that. He's going into a different place with the point that he's driving home. And what he's driving home is, for you productivity lovers out there, Eat your heart out. This guy's basically saying, I basically designed and developed Central Park in New York. I mean, building reservoirs and irrigation canals and planting fruit trees and gardens. He's talking about this, like, city project that he managed and oversaw. It's like SimCity in real life with all the money in the world. Man, it's a, it's a productivity lover's dream scenario. Imagine his to-do list in the mornings the real estate calls, the deals to negotiate. Imagine the dopamine releases, all those texts came in, and at the end of the day, at bedtime, he responded to all of them. All the emails he'd gotten back to, or he hired someone to get back to him. He's like, I can go to bed, and there's no notification badges anymore. I'm a happy man. But then he wakes up, and tomorrow morning, there's like 37 texts and 50 emails, and he's got to do it all over again you'd think certainly he's found happiness now. Even in verse 10, he says, my heart took delight in my labor. I loved my job. I loved the work. It was meaningful to me. But then he says right after that, this years-long romance with productivity that I had, it ended up in a breakup too that broke my heart. It was meaningless. It was heaven. Because every day, the sun rose again, and it was Groundhog Day. And after I die, what comes of the park? What comes of all the stuff I poured my life into? Just gets handed over to someone else who doesn't appreciate it, develops it, sells it. So let's zoom out real quick and talk about these two paths that we've talked about and then we'll bring it to a close. Our friend the teacher has just told us this simple thing. He makes it to the end of the pleasure rainbow and to the end of the productivity rainbow where we expect the pot of gold to be that we're chasing. And he says, guys, I got here and that sucker's empty. Abort your mission, turn around, head back home. Don't expend any more energy on this. Don't buy any more gas heading this way. He's saying to those of you who want my life, who want all the stuff I described in this passage, who envy that, that absolutely matches why you're going to school and getting a degree so that you can get the money to have this kind of life. He's saying, listen to me, abort the mission. This shouldn't be news to us if we listen to other friends of ours. And I know these people probably aren't literal friends of ours, but we hear them and we hear them say stuff like this and all of us know they say stuff like this, but it floats out of our minds and it leaves our dreams alive. Halle Berry said, beauty, let me tell you something. Being thought of as a beautiful woman has spared me nothing in life. No heartache, no trouble, love has been difficult, beauty is essentially, essentially meaningless and it's always transitory. Jim Carrey, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Tom Brady, you know this by heart, right? Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. And I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this is it. This can't be what all it's cracked up to be. One more quote from the Wall Street Journal, as if that carries authority with y'all. <laughs> but why not? Two paragraphs. This is a, a writer... Um, I don't know the guy, Oliver Berkman, but he said this about productivity and optimizing his schedule and getting a nice little 2022 planner with a felt tip pen and every morning sitting down and planning out his day. He said, I spent years trying and failing to achieve mastery over my time. I've squandered countless hours and had a fair amount of money spent mainly on fancy notebooks and pens and service to the belief that if I could only find the right time management system, build the right habits, apply enough self-discipline, then I might actually be able to win the struggle with time, once for all. Using these techniques often made me feel as if I were on the verge of ushering in a golden era of calm, undistracted productivity, meaningful activity. But it never arrived. Instead, I just got more stressed and unhappy. He says, I remember sitting on a park bench near my home in Brooklyn one winter morning, feeling even more anxious than usual about the amount of unfinished tasks and I suddenly realized that none of this was ever going to work. I would never succeed in marshalling enough efficiency or self-discipline or effort to force my way through to the feeling that I was on top of everything, that I was fulfilling all my obligations and had no need to worry about the future. Don't take my word for it. Don't even take the teacher's word for it. Halle Berry, Jim Carrey, Tom Brady, before long, Georgia players on the entire team will be saying this thing. I'm already feeling a little bit, like a week later. Like, where's the the euphoria from last week? Wall Street Journal. All of them are saying to us, who are some rungs down the ladder from them, and what we've attained, abort the mission. I've been there, and you don't want to come here. It doesn't have what you're looking for. Now, some of us would comically say, but Ben, easy for them to say. Some of these folks are sitting on like $20 million and they have everything they want, they have fame, they've made it. And some of y'all have said, and I've thought to myself, um, how about I go get this stuff and then I can come back and teach to and say, hey y'all, they were right, you know, having tons of money, not the be all end all, but I'm still set for life. Here's the problem with that. When you lay your life down in pursuit of these paths, it changes you. It changes you. You are a different person 10 miles down these paths than you were at the start. And you're much more different 50 miles deep than you were at the start or 100 miles into this journey of asking money or attention or your weight or your appearance or your job status to make you enough. I'm not going to bog down here. I don't know what the divorce rate in America is. They say it's a stereotype that it's 50%. They say it's a lot lower, but they do agree that the celebrity divorce rate is two to three times what the rest of us have to face or deal with. Why? What do you have to do to make it? You got to be gone all the time. You have a family. If you have a significant other, always on the road, living in a trailer, doing photo shoots, doing pilot episodes. You're always getting, man, you were amazing in that show. Here's a bigger offer. Come over here for four months. It changes you. You pursue pleasure just for the sake of pleasure, it will change you. You will not be the same person. You don't get to say, well, I got here to the end of the pot of gold. Guys, no. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7. We talked about it last spring. He's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, at the end of it, Anybody who listens to these words of mine, as I describe the true kingdom, not the counterfeit kingdom, the true kingdom, true happiness, anyone who listens to my words and does them is like the man or the woman who builds her house on the rock. Then he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, anyone who continues on these paths of productivity or pleasure, hard, uh, work hard, play hard, thinking that there's a pot of gold in it, he'll be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew, slammed against the house and it fell. Here's the reason I said this. Jesus isn't drawing attention to the fact that the house fell down. His last phrase is this, and it's in parentheses. He says, the house fell down, parentheses, and its collapse was great. Some translations will say, will pause and say, The house fell down and great, spectacular, devastating was its fall. Jesus isn't just saying, don't build your house on the sand, it won't stand up. He's saying the size of the existential black hole in your chest, emotionally, existentially, spiritually. When you're 20 miles or 50 miles or 100 miles down these paths of pleasure, looking for God and created things, it it will suck you into it. Great will be the fall, the implosion, the vacuum that's created there. Heavy stuff. So what's the good news? Because Jesus said these verses testify about him. Jesus said everything in the scriptures, one way or another, leads to gospel, leads to good news, leads to the Messiah coming into a heavy world, a frustrated and frustrating world or frustrated and frustrating people like us. So our teacher friend, has maybe successfully, maybe he's working on you, maybe you're resistant, but for a lot of us, maybe he's persuading us, these paths are not worth your pursuit. So the question becomes, well then, what are we supposed to do? Zach Eswine, I referenced him, he said, ultimately, the preacher wants to point out what is vain so that we can discover what is not vain. You know what's not vain or vaporous? Or untrustworthy, his words, which is ironic, because God says through this teacher in here everything is heaven, everything, with the obvious exception of these words and the God that they reveal. The teacher is obviously not writing this book for you to conclude, well, he said everything was meaningless, so I guess his words are too. Another thing I'll kind of check off and let float away. He wants you and I to tune in and to pay attention. He's demolishing everything around us that will lead us nowhere except catching the wind so that one thing remains, one thing that we can find, that is real, that does last, that doesn't evaporate, that does bring pleasure. And it's what we read last week, and it's what he says at the end of this book that we'll reference every week, chapter 12, the very last verses, the end of the matter. When everything is said and done, what's the epilogue of his exploration, turning over every stone in creation, searching what will bring him happiness? Here's the end of the matter, he says Fear God and keep his commandments. And remember what we said last week. This isn't some generic deity, some ideology. He's talking about the redeeming God who shows himself to be a friend of sinners and a deliverer of the dead and of the stuck and of the condemned and of the sinful. When he says fear, he doesn't mean be scared of simply. He means live in awe, supremely impressed by this redeeming God. So much so that you can't not think about him. The good news of the gospel, friends, is this, and if you didn't hear anything else, hear this. The good news of the gospel is that the result of Jesus' perfect life on your behalf and his liberating death on your behalf and his powerful resurrection on your behalf is that God gives you the one singular thing that death cannot take from you or erase. Your popularity, death will take, or you moving and graduating. No one's going to remember any of us. When I leave here one day, two years later, who's been coppage? Your grades, who cares in five years what your grades were here? Um, Your friends, they fade away too. Your money fades away. Your body fades away. The one thing that never fades away is the one thing you don't have to work to earn and the one thing that you don't chase because it's the thing that God in his mercy freely gives to people like us who chase our tails and chase all the wrong things. And he chases all the wrong people. And he comes, he who is meaning, he who is truth, he who is life, he who is love, and he gives us the one pleasure that's the pleasure of all pleasures. And it's this, knowing that the Father God takes pleasure in you Because he has united you to Jesus who he is pleased with. Some of you know what it's like to have an earthly father who is pleased in you. You love him and respect him so much. Shine in his love. You know what I'm talking about. and Some of you don't. And God's going to teach you directly what it looks like with him. But this is what he's talking about. You want to know pleasure? You know the father's pleasure over a reconciled sinner who's been united to the son he's pleased in. And now he says in a permanent way, I'm forever pleased with you. You have me, and I have you. Friends, let's pray and wrap it up there. We'll come back next week for the next edition of this teacher's exploration. Jesus, that is the gospel. The Bible did not end at Ecclesiastes, and we praise you for it. Book after book kept coming as they recorded all of what you have done to come in history into this frustrated and frustrating world to save us, to reconcile us, to bring us life, to cleanse us, to free us, and to adopt us as your own. My prayer is that all of us who know you would know you better from these messages, and those who don't know you, you would make it safe for them to recognize and say, I don't know you. But I want to desperately. And would you meet them in that desperation to know you? Show yourself to them.